you're listening to audio from Mountain View Church located in Murphy, North Carolina. If you'd like more information, you can find us at www.mtnvu.org or on Instagram and Facebook, Mountain View Church NC. Merry Christmas! Welcome to Mountain View Church. We are so glad you are here to worship with us this morning. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors. And uh, it is my joy and privilege to be able to open up the scriptures with you today. I invite you to turn, if you've got your Bibles, to Exodus chapter 34. We are in week four this morning of a series that we titled, We Have Seen His Glory. And we're looking at and exploring throughout this month the character of God as God revealed himself to Moses immediately following the golden calf incident in Exodus 34, verse 6. And there in that single verse, God unfolds his heart to Moses and describes himself as a God compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And this morning, we want to look at what it means for God to abound in steadfast love. And as I was thinking about what that means, and as I was preparing the message for this week, I felt like I needed to issue a bit of a disclaimer before we get started. I'm a big fan of those debates regarding what is and isn't a Christmas movie. I think that all started with whether or not Die Hard is or isn't a Christmas movie. But there are others to be debated, like the Christmas classic Gremlins. It does take place on Christmas Eve, so technically. And then there's that great gritty Christmas classic Lethal Weapon. Or... The very first Rambo movie. (laughs) Technically, it takes place during the holiday season, too. Or what what about that romantic comedy classic, You've Got Mail? Also takes place during the Christmas season. Well, I feel a bit like saying this morning that some of you, if you haven't been here for the prior parts of this series are going to journey with me a little while and you're going to begin to think, what does this have to do with Christmas? Well, my encouragement would be stick with me and we'll get there this morning. Exodus chapter 34, beginning in verse 5, we read these words. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us, 
for your inheritance. Father, as we dig in this morning to what essentially amounts to a single word of Scripture, God, I pray that you'd open every heart in this place to receive what you would say to us today. And that more than anything, you would communicate the truth about yourself to us. Namely, that you are a God who keeps your commitments. You are a God of enduring love, a God of faithful love, a God of timeless, never-ending, infinite love. May that permeate this message this morning. And I pray that this comes home to every heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So often we make the mistake of reading the various stories of the Old Testament in isolation from one another. This is a mistake because all of those little stories are telling one big story about God and his faithfulness to his promises and his people. Take, for instance, the story of the golden calf recounted for us in Exodus chapter 32. We've looked at this sad story for the last three Sundays. It is, after all, in the aftermath of this story that God reveals himself to Moses as compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Well, there's no way to understand God's response to the unfaithfulness of his people in this story or his revelation of his own character to Moses following this story without understanding God's prior commitment to Abraham and his descendants. Come to think of it, there's really no way to understand the story of the whole Bible without understanding God's prior commitment to Abraham and his descendants. Back in Genesis chapter 12, near the very beginning of the Bible, God made a series of promises to a man named Abram, whose name God later changed to Abraham. Abraham had done nothing to warrant God making these extravagant promises to him. God simply chose Abram. That's it. God told Abram to leave his homeland and he promised Abram, number one, that he would make a great nation of him. Number two, that he would make his name great and make him a blessing. Number three, that he would bless those who bless Abram and curse those who curse Abram. And number four, that he would bless all of the peoples of the earth through Abram's family. But God didn't stop there. In Genesis chapter 15, God made it clear to Abram that he fully intended to keep these promises. Just how did God make this clear? He had Abram bring a young cow 
a young goat, a young ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And no, this isn't the first instance in recorded history of the singing of the 12 days of Christmas. (laughs) He had Abram cut them all in half with the exception of the birds and lay each half opposite the other, creating a path between the halves. When night came, Abram witnessed a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the animal halves. Genesis 15, 18 tells us that on that day, the Lord made a covenant or a binding agreement with Abram. Now, to our ears, this sounds like a bizarre way to make a promise. It's certainly more gruesome than pinky swearing or shaking hands or signing on a dotted line or simply giving someone your word. But that's just the point. By having Abraham lay out the animal carcasses and passing between them, God is saying to Abram that Abram can count on God to keep his word even if it cost him everything. More on that later. It's not until Exodus 34, 6 that we hear God say of himself that he is a God abounding in steadfast love. But it is here in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 that we begin to watch the depth of the word chesed take shape in God's actions. That is the Hebrew word, by the way, chesed. And it's a deep, deep well of a word. Some have even called it untranslatable and inexpressible, which is actually fitting because it tells us something significant about the infinite well that is the goodness of the heart of God. In fact, it might just be the most significant of the five words God uses to describe himself in Exodus 34 Six, for instance, it's the only one of the five that's repeated in verse seven. And beyond these two appearances in these two verses, this word is used some 240 plus other times in the Old Testament. And it's rendered in a variety of English translations in all kinds of different and beautiful ways, loving kindness, merciful love, sure love, relentless love, extravagant love, love in action, dependable love, steady love, true love, generous love, faithful love, unfailing love, unswerving loyalty merciful kindness, everlasting kindness, persistent faithfulness. 
immense favor, loyal friendship, enduring commitment. In Genesis 15, God binds himself to Abram, to his descendants, and to the extravagant promises that he makes to Abram. And all of this, apart from anything Abram does to deserve such unrestrained kindness, God will come through. God is all in. He will ensure that each and every promise is kept. Why? Because hesed or loyal love describes who God is. Perhaps you've known nothing but broken promises in your life. Perhaps you've heard the words, I love you, one too many times from people who have demonstrated nothing but the opposite. And perhaps you've internalized some dark thoughts about God as a result. What if I told you this morning that God wants to begin to gently correct those beliefs? What if I told you God wants to do that because the God who revealed himself to Moses as a God overflowing in loyal love wants you to know him for who he really is? I pray that you'll say yes to his heart healing invitation this morning. When God makes a commitment, he keeps it. That's point number one this morning. Not just because that's what he does, but because that's who he is. When God makes a commitment, he keeps it. That's point number two this morning. This brings us back to the book of Exodus. Everything that God does for the enslaved children of Israel in the Exodus story. He does because he is a God of hesed, or unwavering, unfaltering, never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. In Exodus 2.4, we read these words, and God heard their groaning. Who's groaning? the groanings of the children of Israel enslaved under Pharaoh. And God remembered the covenant that he made with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Now, it's not that God somehow forgot his promises. We're simply being told at the beginning of the book of Exodus why God is about to act on behalf of this group of people. The calling of Moses, the 10 warnings to Pharaoh, the remarkable act of salvation at the Red Sea, the provision in the wilderness, the giving of the 10 commandments at Mount Sinai. God is doing all of this because he made promises to Abraham 
and to his family. And he intends to keep them. Enter the incident with the golden calf. Exodus 32. Here, hot on the hills of all of the miracles they had witnessed while in Egypt, hot on the hills of the rescue at the Red Sea, hot on the hills of God's revelation of himself and his will for them at Mount Sinai. The people who have inherited all of these promises test God's commitment to them. After entering into something akin to a marriage relationship with God, they betray him. Like a bride on her honeymoon who decides that she wants to be with someone else in the middle of her honeymoon. Israel rejects God and chooses Instead, an idol made of gold and shaped like a young bull. Can you imagine the hurt that God must have felt? Talk about this group of people giving God every reason to consume them in his anger and simply start over with Moses. Which, by the way, is a suggestion God makes to Moses. That is, until Moses steps in and says the following to God in Exodus 32, 13. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all of this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. Remember your covenant with Abraham. Again, it's not as if God had forgotten his promises to good old Abe. Moses is simply and wisely asking God to act in accordance with his promises to Abraham. And this is exactly what God does. In the very next verse, we read, and the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing upon his people. Why? Because as God will reveal to Moses in Exodus 34, 6, he is a God rich, plentiful, abounding and overflowing in extravagant, loyal, steadfast love. When God makes a commitment, in other words, he does what? He keeps it. And he keeps it even when those to whom he has committed himself 
prove to be unfaithful or lacking in loyal love themselves. And just to be clear, (laughs) this is merely the first time in the Old Testament story of ancient Israel that Israel will prove to be unfaithful. In fact, this story establishes a pattern that will unfold again and again and again and again and again and again many, 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 many more times. But again, that's just the point. The love of God that is steadfast and enduring shines all the brighter against the dark backdrop of Israel's repeated lack of loyal love in return. Ultimately, that tells us that God's enduring commitment to his people doesn't arise out of anything his people do or don't do. His enduring commitment to his people arises out of where? Himself. Brothers and sisters, that is wonderful news for you and me. Wonderful news. Fast forward roughly 700 years past this moment in Israel's story, past the period of the judges, past the height of the United Kingdom of Israel under King Solomon, past the destruction of the northern kingdom at the hands of the Assyrians, and past the point of no return for the southern kingdom of Judah. Even as the weeping prophet Jeremiah mourns, amidst the smoldering ruins of Jerusalem. He can't help but celebrate the never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love of God. In fact, this is the very thing that anchors his soul when all around him he sees nothing but ransacked reminders of the stubborn rebellion of God's unfaithful people. God's promises of exile have come to pass. God's judgment has finally fallen upon Judah and upon Jerusalem. The Babylonians have leveled Solomon's temple. And they've carted off a good measure of the population to Babylon. And Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, has nothing else at this point but the steadfast love of God. But right in the middle of the book of Lamentations, where we see Jeremiah pouring out his heart regarding all of these things, Literally at the center of the book, we read these words in Lamentations 3, 22 through 24. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. 
His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, and therefore I will hope in him. Friends, these aren't the words of a person spoken on the mountaintop. These are the words of an individual spoken in the deepest, darkest valley you can possibly imagine. When everything else that the people of Judah were depending upon was swept away in the judgment of God, the prophet Jeremiah says, I've got one thing that I can hang my hat on. The steadfast, loyal, enduring love of God. You know, these three verses, they mean a lot to a lot of us because they're a reminder that sin and suffering will not have the final word in the lives of God's children. Though darkness prevail for a time, and though we suffer sometimes deeply because of our own sin, or the sin of others, or simply as a result of living in a fallen world, you and I have the assurance that it is not the darkness that will last forever. It is the steadfast love of God. His commitment to us has no expiration date. None. You and I cannot out-sin God's multiplied mercies. We cannot weep more tears than he can gather up into his heavenly bottle. Perhaps this Christmas season, is proving particularly difficult for you. Perhaps like me, you lost someone close to you this year. My dad passed away on March 29th. Perhaps you're suffering the consequences of some sinful choices that you made. Or you're suffering the consequences of someone else's sinful choices. It's perfectly normal to mourn. It's also life-giving in the midst of the deepest, darkest valley. To hear the invitation of the weeping prophet to find our hope in God and in his steadfast, loyal love, even as we weep. Because of the loyal love of God, Jeremiah knows that the fall of Judah to the Babylonians isn't in fact the end of the story. It surely seems to him as if all is lost, but he knows. He knows in his deepest heart 
that the repeated rebellion of Israel isn't the end of the story, though that rebellion seems to persist. In spite of the darkness all around him, Jeremiah knows that a new day will dawn. After all, what does he say? The mercies of the Lord are new every single morning. And because of God's loyal love, though Jeremiah doesn't know exactly how God will do this, he knows that God will keep all of his promises to his people. He's confident that God will do it because his mercies never end. Little does he know, in fact, that the light will eventually dawn in the midst of deep darkness. In the form of an infant born of glory, but wrapped in swaddling clothes and placed in a feeding trough of all places. Little does he know, in fact, that this child, the light of all the world, will quietly invade the darkness. His birth witnessed only by shepherds watching their flocks by night, and he will go on to defeat the darkness by allowing it to consume him. What kind of God, what kind of king is this? Remember, when God makes a commitment, he keeps it, no matter the cost to himself. In the prologue to John's gospel, he writes these words about the man, Jesus. Words that we have sought to explore each of the last three Sundays. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Those final words should sound familiar to you. Grace and truth. This is John's way of cluing us into the fact that the man Jesus, about whom he is going to write this lengthy biography, is the full embodiment of the God who revealed himself to Moses on the mountain. The God who is overflowing in steadfast love and faithfulness is the God who became flesh in Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Messiah, is the God of enduring, kind-hearted love come to his people. Come to his people in order to keep all of his promises to them 
and through them. Jesus, the Word made flesh, is the God who passed between the animal carcasses and declared to Abram that he would keep his promises to Abram no matter the cost. Jesus, the Word made flesh, is the God who was willing to say to Abraham that if blood had to be spilled in order to keep these promises, it would not be Abram's blood. It would be his own. He's more than willing to die. Just like the animals he passed between in order to bring these promises to pass. It's no coincidence then that John the Baptist, the prophet sent ahead of Jesus to prepare the way for his coming, introduces Jesus publicly as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In the Exodus story, A lamb had given its life in each home so that the firstborn in each home might be spared the final plague in Egypt. In the end, it is this final plague commemorated through Passover that secures the freedom of the children of Israel from slavery. In the same way, The death of Jesus, the true Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, would secure and has secured the freedom of God's people from slavery to sin. God intended the offering of the blood of a spotless lamb to be a picture of the offering of his one and only Son who would eventually come to earth in order to offer up his own life on a Roman cross that God might provide a payment himself because of his steadfast love for the sins of his people. Talk about extravagant, over-the-top, lavish love in action. At the end of the day, the God of Israel ends up keeping both sides of the covenant. He keeps his promises and then he pays for the unfaithfulness of his people. As good as it is to celebrate the incarnation, which It's simply a big fancy word that means that the God of Israel became flesh or a true 100% human being in Jesus of Nazareth. As good as it is to celebrate that today, it is imperative that we only pause at the manger on our way to the cross. The never stopping, never giving up, forever love of God compelled God not only to stoop low and to become one of his own people, 
but to stoop lower still. And to take upon himself the due penalty for the sin of the world. In Jesus Christ, the love of God came down all the way down and entered into our suffering. And not just for his own people, but again for the whole world. As Jesus tells the Jewish teacher Nicodemus in one of the most famous passages in all of the New Testament. For God so, what? Loved the world. That he gave his only son. In other words, he did not hold back his very best. In order to keep his commitment. He gave his dearest and only beloved son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. For God so loved the world. Jesus, the son of loyal love, is the means by which God fulfills his promise to Abram to bless the whole world through him and his descendants. Jesus, the son of loyal love, is the means by which you and I come to know the love of this God. This God who first revealed himself to Moses as abounding in steadfast love. Jesus is the steadfast, loyal love of God in human form. And his death in our place is the greatest display in history of the extravagant, enduring, spare no expense love of God. In fact, as the Apostle John will later say in his first letter, by this we know love, that he laid down his own life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Friends, this is the wonderful news of the Christmas season, by the way. God was not willing to let his people be confined to cycle after cycle of idolatrous infidelity. And he wasn't willing to leave you or I in our hopeless and helpless sinful state. Though he would have been well within his rights to judge us for our sin. He chose to respond not in anger and not because of something he found in us but because of who he is. He is the God of chesed, of steadfast, loyal love, a God overflowing in extravagant generosity, overflowing an enduring love, a God who delights, who delights from his deepest heart to show mercy to those who least 
deserve it. Because he is a God of never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. He came to earth, not only to live, but to die so that the curse of sin might be forever broken and all of those who entrust their lives to his son might enjoy life forever with him. By the way, friends, a life that begins right here and right now. A life that will never ever end. A life that not even death can interrupt. In the end, this is what makes the God of the Bible different from any other so-called God. One author says, the great surprise of the Hebrew Bible is not that God is awesome or holy. These characteristics we would expect from God. The great surprise is that he is kind. That he is a God of chesed. This is what fundamentally makes him unlike any other God then or now. No wonder the ancient songwriter of Psalm 89 wrote these words in verse 1. I will sing of the steadfast love or the hesed of the Lord. Can you finish it? Forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. As I was rolling that verse around in my mind this week, I couldn't help but think about the old Sonic Flood song. Remember that one? I could sing of your love forever. The only fitting thing to do in response to a never-ending loyal love that lasts forever is to sing about it forever. That's what the psalmist is saying. To have that love capture our whole being and be the theme of our lives both now and forevermore. Is the never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love of God the theme of your song? Is the extravagant and generous love of God the thing that rises up out of your heart when you think of all that he's done for you? Give it 48 hours and most of us will be all done with Christmas music for another year. Some of you may already be there. Some of you, like me, may have Christmas songs that you make it a point to never listen to from the beginning of the Christmas season until the end. And truth be told, some of us in this room will be all done with Jesus until Easter. 
However, if you're here this morning, I believe the God of steadfast love is pursuing you. I believe you are being hounded by Hesed. And I believe you are being invited to taste and see that the Lord is truly good. And to find in him a song that you can sing with your lips and your life for the rest of your life. If you give your life to him by placing your trust in Jesus Christ today. I can't promise that you'll never face another challenge in Christmas. Nor can I promise that all the problems in front of you will instantaneously resolve themselves. But I can promise you that the God who is abounding in steadfast love will give himself to you. And he will never, ever, ever, ever let you go. Why? Because that's just who he is. When he makes a commitment, he keeps it. No matter the cost to himself, He is a God abounding in steadfast, loyal, enduring love, and there is no one like this God. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, quote, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. The implication being if there is anything that can cut us off from the love of God, it is what? Death. But the Apostle Paul goes on to say, no. In all of these things, even in death, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am certain that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a hope we have in Christ Jesus. What a hope that's available to you if you are not yet a follower of Christ. All you have to do is ask. And God will give himself to you. And if he gives himself to you, Paul says earlier in Romans chapter 8, 
how can he not then give us all things with himself in Christ Jesus? Let's pray.